I'm sure you'll agree that TV adverts are full of advice. Advice about what you should get. Let me give you some examples. Now, if you're a lady, L'Oreal says, you really must get their shampoo. And why? Because you're worth it. That's right. Or if you're a guy, and you buy a new Peugeot 407 coupe, okay, what's going to be the amazing effect? You'll become the most attractive person in the whole world. Or how about your mobile phone? What is the must-have phone of the future? Well, it's one that can do everything. Download chart hits, watch TV, take photographs, and even listen to the radio. How do we ever cope without it? TV adverts are full of advice. So let me ask you. Is that what life is all about? Is life all about getting things? Of buying things, wearing things, and eating things? Or is there more to life? Shakespeare, in his play Macbeth, writes this about life. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. So, is Shakespeare right? Almost 2,000 years ago, a man called Paul gave us an answer to that question. And tonight, we're going to look at what he said. It was around the year AD 57. And Paul is writing a letter to the greatest city, of classical antiquity in the West, Rome. And Paul knew about Rome. Everyone knew about Rome. It was the capital of a vast empire, extending westward to to modern Great Britain, northward to modern Germany, eastward to modern Iran, and southward up the Nile in Egypt. And it's here to a Christian community in the city of Rome, that Paul explains one of the great purposes of our lives. And what is that purpose? Well, here it is. You were shaped for serving God. You see, you were created not just to get, but to give. Sir Winston Churchill recognized this when he once declared, we make a living by what we get. We make a life By what we give. And so tonight, as we continue in 40 days of purpose, we're going to look at this great purpose of your life. Now, if you recall, from the first week, we looked at worship. You were planned for God's pleasure. And the second week, we looked at fellowship. You were formed for God's family. Last week, discipleship. You were created to become like Christ. And it's now we come to ministry. You are shaped for serving God. And if you turn to Romans chapter 12, we find out what this means. And so tonight, I invite you to join me as we investigate what it means to be a servant of God. And we're going to explore three marks of a servant. Number one, the mind of a servant. Number two, the ministry 
of a servant. And number three, the motive of a servant. And so firstly, the mind of a servant. Verses 1 to 3. Now, have you ever heard the expression, you are what you eat? Yes? Well, notice what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 12. He is saying, look, what you feed your minds on, it matters. But instead, what often happens? We're more concerned what other people are feeding on. Picture the scene. You're traveling on a train or a bus. And someone near you goes into their briefcase or bag and takes out a book or a magazine. Okay? Now, what do people nearby often try and do? Yes, they have a good old gape. And why? To see what they're reading. However, for a servant of God, what you feed on does matter. And if you look at verse 1, we see that. Verse 1, what does it say? Paul writes, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Now, if you were here about three weeks ago, we looked at this in thinking about worship. But tonight we're going to ask this question. Okay, so how do we practically live this out? And we'll discover it means being a servant. And there are three things to notice about the mind of a servant. Number one, it is a mind reconciled by Christ. And it's here we come to the greatest need that you and I will ever have. And here it is. It's to be reconciled with our creator God. And listen, deep within all of us, we know that. Madeleine Murray O'Hare knew that. Now, Madeleine was an atheist. But after she died, her diary was found. And inside, she had written these words many times. Somebody, somewhere, love me. Tragic words. Have you ever asked that? Somebody, somewhere, love me. Well, in verse 1, just look at how much you are loved by God. There's that marvellous little phrase, in view of God's mercy. And literally, it is God's mercies. You see, we are rebels, rebels against God. And think about it. Where is the source of that rebellion? It's the mind. To the church in Colossae, Paul writes this. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. But look at what our creator does. It's amazing. He offers us mercy, his amazing love, and not giving us what we deserve, the wages of sin. Instead, what does he offer us? The free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let me ask you, do you know why people go to hell? They choose to reject God's offer of mercy. And I wonder, have you still to receive God's offer of mercy. There's nothing more important. Number two, the mind of a servant is a mind renewed in Christ. Look at verse two. Paul writes, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
Now, what does Paul mean here? Well, he's speaking about where a servant of God lives. Let me illustrate it this way. Back when I was 18, I went on a working holiday to Australia. And I got a job as a bricklayer in Perth, Western Australia, in a place called Wanneroo. All good experience of being an assistant pastor. And after that, I went hitchhiking across the Nullarbor Desert. And the thing to know about this desert is, it is empty. Absolutely empty. And you feel like you've been taken to a different planet. Just you. Now here's the point. Being a Christian is the complete opposite. You see, once we become Christians, we are not magically set apart from this world. A world that is indifferent or hostile to God. And it's in this world, in that home, that university, school, college, hospital, that God says to you, it is there that I want you to serve me. And how do you live like that? By allowing his spirit and the word of God to renew your, to renew your minds. In the words of J.B. Phillips, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within. So number one, the mind of a servant is a mind reconciled by Christ. Number two, it is a mind renewed in Christ. And number three, it is a mind refocused for Christ. And we got a picture of focus this afternoon at the Scotland-Wales rugby game. Now I should say, if you are Welsh, you got a picture of focus. If you are Scottish, you got a picture of a lack of focus. Well, if you look at verse 3, we find where a servant's mind is to focus. Verse 3, Paul writes, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith. Notice that expression, the measure of faith God has given you. Now you notice the key word here is think, repeated four times in the original Greek. And literally it reads, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but rather think of yourself with sober thinking. Okay, so let me ask you, how are we to think of ourselves? By focusing on Jesus, the unique Son of God. In particular, notice, to see ourselves, our worth, in light of our faith in Jesus. And listen, for every believer, that is where your value lies. John Piper comments helpfully. This is the meaning of Christian humility. It is a kind of self-forgetfulness produced by treasuring Christ. A wonderful expression. The Christian alternative to thinking too highly of ourselves is merely to think highly of Christ. Thinking about ourselves will produce a pride or despair. And both are forms of unbelief. The gospel alternative to pride, listen, is not mere self-condemnation, but Christ exaltation. So that is the first mark of a servant, the mind of a servant. And the second is the ministry of a servant. Verses 4 to 8, the ministry of a servant. Now, I don't know if you have a role model in life, but when I was young, there were some people who I thought were just it. Okay, Someone like John Stott. 
evangelical statesman and pastor. And of course, Billy Graham, missionary evangelist to the world. And what about David, David Livingston, pioneer missionary to Africa? And yes, these people, I thought, were real ministers. Why? Because that's what ministers do. They are pastors, evangelists, and missionaries. So let me ask you, was I correct? Yes. But was I complete? No. Rick Warren, in his book, The Purpose Driven Life, writes correctly, he writes this. When most people hear ministry, they think of pastors and professional clergy. But God says, every member of his family is a minister. In the Bible, the words servant and minister are synonyms, as are service and ministry. If you're a Christian, you are a minister. And when you're serving, you're ministering. And there are two things to notice here about being a minister. First, it means being united in diversity. And Paul describes our diversity in two two phrases. Verses 4 and 5, we who are many form one body. And verse 6, we have different gifts according to the grace given us. And so firstly, we who are many form one body. Now you'll notice, in using this metaphor, Paul doesn't say that Christians are like a body. They are the body of Christ. So what does that mean? Well, stay with me. If you think back to Romans chapter 5, if you, if you recall in Romans chapter 5, Paul thinks of Christ like Adam, as a corporate person. In other words, one who includes within himself many others. Okay? And here's the point. Everyone who believes in Christ becomes a part of him. To be in Christ is to be joined to his body. And that body is global. It's global. I like to imagine this. Early this morning, when we were all still asleep in bed, there were millions of Christians meeting to worship God like a big, giant Mexican wave. And it started over in the Pacific, New Zealand. And then it went over to Australia. And then into the great continent of Asia. China, Beijing, Thailand, India, Delhi, Pakistan, Kazakhstan. And then into Africa, the Mexican wave continues. Kenya, Nairobi, the Sudan, South Africa, Johannesburg, Nigeria, Morocco, Marrakesh. And then all of Europe wakes up. Warsaw, Budapest, Rome, Paris, Edinburgh, Charlotte Chapel. And then it crosses the Atlantic. The thriving churches of South America and the states meeting to worship God. One giant global Mexican wave. Now, says Paul, If you're a Christian, that's the family you belong to, the body of Christ. To the church in Ephesus. Listen to what Paul writes. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him, that is Christ, to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. But listen, it's not only a global church, it's a local church. Church. And very simply, here's how you can apply this. Join a church. You see, the real question is not whether you join a local church, but which church you join. Because listen, it's only in a local church that you can discover your true identity 
and function as God intended. And now secondly, verse 6, Paul writes, We have different gifts according to the grace given us. Three points to note briefly here. Number one, the source of the gifts. They come from God and his grace. Notice, God who is triune in Romans chapter 12, Romans 12, it is God the Father. In Ephesians 4, it's God the Son. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, God the Holy Spirit. Number two, the purpose of the gifts. Why are they given? For the building up of the body of Christ. And Ephesians chapter 4 is the most explicit here. To prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. And number three, the variety of the gifts. F.F. Bruce comments here. Diversity, not uniformity, is the mark of God's handiwork. It is so in nature, it is equally so in grace, and nowhere more so than in the Christian community. Now, have you ever asked yourself this? What gifts has God given me? And where can I use these gifts? And who do I speak to? Now, if that is you, the ministry fair is for you. And it was heaving, as you can see, this morning. Why? Because you are shaped for serving God. So, united in diversity. Secondly, united in dependency. Verse 5. Sorry for this throat, by the way. I've got the cold. Uh, anyway, so in Christ. Verse 5. So in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Now watch this. This is incredible. Paul is telling us here that our unity is more profound than just belonging to the same body. Okay? Notice, we belong to each other. So what does that mean? Well, the unity of the church is greater than being part of the same organic whole. It has been part of each other. Okay? Let me illustrate this. Imagine what would happen if I got shot in the left shoulder by John. You would all be very upset. Yes? Yes? Thank you. But my right hand would instinctively reach for my left shoulder, just as immediately as if my hand itself felt the pain. You see, the reaction of the body part is just like it's happening to itself. Yes? We belong to each other, Paul says. Question. What does that mean for us at Charlotte Chapel? We're all on the same team. And you can test yourself by asking, am I competing with others in ministry? Or am I complementing others in ministry? At Charlotte Chapel, we're all on the same team. So we've looked at the mind of a servant and also the ministry of a servant. Now finally, we come to the motive of a servant. Very important, the motive of a servant. Verses 9 to 13. Now on Friday, you may know that the Winter Olympics launched in Turin in Italy. Now who remembers Eddie the Flying Eagle? He is one of my heroes. Well this year, more than 2,500 people Athletes, sorry, arrived in Turin. And one of them is Rona Martin, Scottish housewife and mother of two, but also Olympic gold champion. I wonder if she plays rugby. Back in 2002, 
If you remember, Rona famously led the women's curling team to victory in Salt Lake City. And this year she's back. And what is her motive? Is it to stay in the purpose-built Olympic village with its very own shopping centre, two large restaurants and even a massage centre? And it does sound very attractive. But the answer is no. She wants to win a second Olympic gold. Standing on the podium, she said, with the national anthem playing, was definitely the bit that will always stand out. Now, a servant of God has very clear motives. And it means looking in three directions. Firstly, look back at the grace of Christ. Fanny Crosby did that. At the age of only six weeks, she was blinded by an illness. But what captivated Fanny Crosby was not her illness, but Christ. And one day she wrote a song, and she called it her soul's poem. And it's very moving. Here's what it says. Someday the silver cord will break, and I no more as now shall sing, but all the joy when I shall wake within the palace of the king, and I shall see him face to face and tell the story, saved by grace. Saved by grace. And in the words of verse 9, it was the greatest act of sincere love that this world has ever seen. In Jesus God was made man. In Jesus, the creator became the crucified. Amazing. Theologian R.C. Sproul put it very well. He said this. Moses could mediate on the law. Mohammed could brandish a sword. Buddha could give personal counsel. Confucius could offer wise sayings. But none of these men was qualified to offer an atonement for the sins of the world. Christ alone is worthy of unlimited devotion and service. And it's the motive that inspired Bill Bill Bright, founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, to write a contract to God as a young man. From this day forward, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. And it's the motive that stirred C.T. Studd, the founder of WEC International, to pen those immortal words, if Jesus Christ be God and die for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. And secondly, look around with the compassion of Christ. Verse 10, look at what it says. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour, fervour serving the Lord. Now, there are many great things about living in Edinburgh. And one of them is that the world comes to your doorstep for the International Festival. And you know what's been brilliant? Well, I'll tell you. It's seeing new Christians and older Christians serving together in love during our festival outreach. Caring for each other and befriending each other while doing a variety of jobs together, like selling ice creams. Serving teas and coffees, stewarding, video recording, ticket sales, handing out flyers and so on, while looking very smart in their new t-shirts. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 13. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. So we look back 
at the grace of Christ. We look around with the compassion of Christ. And now finally, we look forward to the return of Christ. Let me give you two contrasting thoughts about the future. And the first is from Mark Twain. Mark Twain said this. A myriad of men are born. They labor and sweat and struggle. It's the release comes at last and they vanish from a world where they were of no consequence. A world which will lament them a day and forget them forever. Now the second is from Paul, the author of this letter. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul writes these words. Forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. Paul knows where his future lies. And that's why he writes in verse 12. Notice, be joyful in hope. Yesterday, I was at a funeral service of Ivor Alexander. Ivor was a member of this church for many years. And as Ivor approached the end of his life, he could echo these words of Paul with full assurance. I have fought the good fights. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. And that is the goal for every Christian. That is the prize. And nothing even comes close. For no eye has seen, no ear has heard, No mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. I wonder tonight if you also are looking forward to his return. Tonight we began by looking at what it means to get, to live for ourselves and to live without purpose. We've also looked at what it means to give, to live for God and to be a servant of God. Frances Ridley Havergal was someone who chose to be a servant of God. And was she gifted? Absolutely. Highly educated, a songwriter and concert pianist, and proficient in several languages. But notice, she used all her gifts to serve God. In 1874, she wrote a hymn called Take My Life and Let It Be. And one of the lines has these words, Take my silver and my gold, not a mite, would I withhold? In 1878, four years later, Frances was challenged by her very own words. And she wrote this to a friend in a letter. The Lord has shown me another little step. And of course, I have taken it with extreme delight. Take my silver and my gold. Now means shipping off all my ornaments to the church missionary house, including a jewel cabinet, that is really fit for a countess, where all be accepted and disposed of for me. Nearly 50 articles are being packed up. I don't think I ever packed a box with such pleasure. You see, Francis knew that she was shaped for serving God. And my challenge to you is simply this. How will you respond tonight? Let us pray.